0: Colonisation and Christianization, Caliban and Witches in the New World Quote And so they say that we have come to this earth to destroy the world They say that the wind ruins houses and cut the trees And the fire burns them, but that we devour everything We consume the earth, we redirect the rivers We are never quiet, never at rest But always run here and there, seeking gold and silver Never satisfied and then we gamble with it, make war, kill each other, rob, swear, never say the truth, and have deprived them of their means of livelihood. And finally, they curse the sea which has put on the earth such evil and harsh children." Unquote. Girolamo Benzoni, Historia del Mundo Norfo, 1565. Quote, Overcome by torture and pain, the women were obliged to confess that they did adore Huacas, they lamented, Now in this life we women are Christian. Perhaps then the priest is to blame if we women adore the mountains, if we flee to the hills and Puna, since there is no justice for us here." Unquote. Felipe Guaman Poma de Ayala, Nueva Crónica y Buen Gobierno, 1615 Introduction. The history of the body and the witch hunt that I have presented is based on an assumption that is summed up by reference to Caliban and the Witch, the characters of the Tempest symbolizing the American Indian's resistance to colonization. The assumption is the continuity between the subjugation of the populations of the New World and that of people in Europe, women in particular, in the transition to capitalism. In both cases, we have the forcible removal of entire communities from their land, large-scale impoverishment, the launch of Christianizing campaigns, destroying people's autonomy and communal relations. We also have a constant cross-fertilization, whereby forms of repression that have been developed in the old world were transported to the new, and then re-imported into Europe. The differences should not be underestimated. By the 18th century, due to the flow of gold, silver and other resources coming from the Americas into Europe, an international division of labor had taken shape That divided the new global proletariat by means of different class relations and systems of discipline, marking the beginning of often conflicting histories within the working class. But the similarities in the treatments to which the populations of Europe and the Americas were subjected are sufficient to demonstrate the existence of one single logic governing the development of capitalism and the structural character of the atrocities perpetrated in this process. An outstanding example is the extension of the witch-hunt to the American colonies. The persecution of women and men through the charge of witchcraft is a phenomenon that, in the past, was largely considered by historians to be limited to Europe. The only exception admitted to this rule were the Salem witch trials, which remain the focus of the scholarship on witch-hunting in the New World. It is now recognized, however, that the charge of devil-worshipping played a key function also in the colonization of the American aboriginal population. On this subject, two texts in particular must be mentioned that form the basis for my discussion in this chapter. The first is Irene Silverblatt's Moon, Sun and Witches in 1987, a study of witch-hunting and the redefinition of gender relations in Inca society and colonial Peru, which, to my knowledge, is the first in English to reconstruct the history of the Andean women persecuted as witches. The other is Luciano Parinetto's *Streghe e Potere in 1998, a series of essays that document the impact of witch-hunting in America on the witch trials in Europe, marred, however, by the author's insistence that the persecution of the witches was gender-neutral. Both of these works demonstrate that also in the New World, witch-hunting was a deliberate strategy used by the authorities to instill terror, destroy collective resistance, silence entire communities, and turn their members against each other. It was also a strategy of enclosure, which, depending on the context, could be enclosure of land, bodies, or social relations. Above all, as in Europe, witch-hunting was a means of dehumanization, and as such the paradigmatic form of repression, serving to justify enslavement and genocide. Witch-hunting did not destroy the resistance of the colonized. Due primarily to the struggle of women, the connection of the American Indians with the land, the local religions, and nature survived beyond the persecution, providing, for more than 500 years, a source of anti-colonial and anti-capitalist resistance. This is extremely important for us, at a time when a renewed assault is being made on the resources and mode of existence of indigenous populations across the planet, for we need to rethink how the conquistadors strove to subdue those whom they colonised, and what enabled the latter to subvert this plan and, against the destruction of their social and physical universe, create a new historical reality. The Birth of the Cannibals When Columbus sailed to the Indies, the witch-hunt in Europe was not yet a mass phenomenon. Nevertheless, the use of devil-worship as a weapon to strike at political enemies and vilify entire populations like Muslims and Jews was already common among the elite. More than that, as Seymour Phillips writes, a, quote, persecuting society had developed within medieval Europe, unquote, fed by militarism and Christian intolerance that looked at the other as mainly an object of aggression. Thus, it is not surprising if cannibal, infidel, barbarian, monstrous races, and devil worshipper were the ethnographic models with which the Europeans quote, entered a new age of expansion, unquote, providing the filter through which missionaries and conquistadors interpreted the cultures, religions, and sexual customs of the people they encountered. Other cultural marks contributed to the invention of the Indians. Most stigmatizing, and perhaps projecting the Spaniard's labor needs, were nakedness and sodomy, that qualified the Amerindians as beings living in an animal state, thus capable of being turned into beasts of burden, though some reports also stressed, as a sign of their bestiality, their propensity to share and, quote, give everything they have in return for things of little value, unquote. Defining the aboriginal American populations as cannibals, devil worshippers, and sodomites supported the fiction that the conquest was not an unabashed quest for gold and silver, but was a converting mission, a claim that, in 1508, helped the Spanish crown gain for it the blessing of the pope and complete authority over the church in the Americas. It also removed, in the eyes of the world and possibly of the colonizers themselves, any sanction against the atrocities which they would commit against the Indians, thus functioning as a license to kill, regardless of what the intended victims might do. And, indeed, quote, the whip, gibbet, and stock, imprisonment, torture, rape, and occasional killing became the standard weapons for enforcing labour discipline unquote, in the New World. In a first phase, however, the image of the colonised as devil worshippers could coexist with a more positive, even idyllic one, picturing the Indians as innocent and generous beings, living a life quote, free of toil and tyranny. Unquote recalling the mythical golden age or an earthly paradise. This characterization may have been a literary stereotype, or, as Roberto Rettemar among others has suggested, the rhetorical counterpart of the image of the savage, expressing the Europeans inability to see the people they met as real human beings. But this optimistic view also corresponded to a period in the conquest, from 1520 to the 1540s, in which the Spaniards still believed that the aboriginal populations would be easily converted and subjugated. This was the time of mass baptisms, when much zeal was deployed in convincing the Indians to change their names and abandon their gods and sexual customs, especially polygamy and homosexuality. Bare-breasted women were forced to cover themselves. Men in loincloths had to put on trousers. But at this time, the struggle against the devil consisted mainly of bonfires of local idols, even though many political and religious leaders from central Mexico were put on trial and burned at the stake by Franciscan father Juan de Zumaraja in the years between 1536, when the Inquisition was introduced in South America, and 1543. As the conquest proceeded, however, no space was left for any accommodations. Imposing one's power over other people is not possible without denigrating them to the point where the possibility of identification is precluded. Thus, despite the earlier homilies about the gentle Tainos, an ideological machine was set in motion, complementing the military one, that portrayed the colonizers as filthy and demonic beings, practicing all kinds of abominations, while the same crimes that previously had been attributed to lack of religious education, sodomy, cannibalism, incest, cross-dressing, were now treated as signs that the Indians were under the dominion of the devil, and that they could be justifiably deprived of their lands and their lives. In reference to this image shift, Fernando Cervantes writes in The Devil in the New World in 1994, Before 1530, it would have been difficult to predict which one of these views would emerge as the dominant one. By the middle of the 16th century, however, a negative demonic view of Amerindian cultures had triumphed and its influence was seen to descend like a thick fog on every statement officially and unofficially made on the subject." It could be summarised, on the basis of the contemporary histories of the Indies, such as de Gomaras and Acostas, that this change of perspective was prompted by the Europeans' encounter with imperialistic states, like the Aztec and Inca, whose repressive machinery included the practice of human sacrifices. In the Historia Natural y Moral de las Indias, published in Sevilla in 1590 by the Jesuit José de Acosta, there are descriptions that give us a vivid sense of the repulsion generated, among the Spaniards, by the mass sacrifices carried out, particularly by the Aztecs, which involved thousands of youths, war captives, or purchased children of the slaves. Yet, when we read Bartolome de las Casas' account of the destruction of the Indies, or any other account of the conquest, We wonder why should the Spaniards have been shocked by this practice when they themselves had no qualms committing unspeakable atrocities for the sake of God and gold, and, according to Cortes, in 1521, they had slaughtered 100,000 people just to conquer Tenochtitlan. Similarly, the cannibalistic rituals they discovered in America, which figure prominently in the records of the conquest, must not have been too different from the medical practices that were popular in Europe at the time. In the 16th, 17th, and even 18th centuries, the drinking of human blood, especially the blood of those who had died in a violent death, and mummy water, obtained by soaking human flesh in various spirits, was a common cure for epilepsy and other illnesses in many European countries. Furthermore, this type of cannibalism, "...involving human flesh, blood, heart, skull, bone marrow, and other body parts, was not limited to fringe groups of society, But was practiced in the most respectable circles." Thus, the new horror that the Spaniards felt for the aboriginal populations after the 1550s cannot be easily attributed to a cultural shock, but must be seen as a response inherent to the logic of colonization that inevitably must dehumanize and fear those it wants to enslave. How successful was this strategy can be seen from the ease with which the Spaniards rationalized the high mortality rates caused by the epidemics that swept the region in the wake of the conquest, which they interpreted as God's punishment for the Indians' beastly conduct. Also, the debate that took place in 1550 at Valladolid in Spain between Bartolomé de las Casas and the Spanish jurist Juan Ginés de Sepulveda on whether or not the Indians were to be considered as human beings would have been unthinkable without an ideological campaign representing the latter as animals and demons. The spread of illustrations portraying life in the new world that began to circulate in Europe after the 1550s completed this work of degradation, with the multitudes of naked bodies and cannibalistic banquets, reminiscent of witches' sabbats, featuring human heads and limbs as the main course. A late example of this genre of literature is Le Livre des Antipodes, in 1630, compiled by Johann Ludwig Gottfried, which displays a number of horrific images women and children stuffing themselves with human entrails, or the cannibal community gathered around a grill, feasting on legs and arms while watching the roasting of human remains. Prior contributions to the cultural production of the Amerindians as bestial beings are the illustrations in Les Singularites de la France Antarctique in Paris in 1557 by the French Franciscan Andre Tevet who already centred on the themes of human quartering, cooking, and banquet, and Hans Staden's Wahrhaftige Historia in Marzburg in 1557, in which the author describes his captivity among the cannibal Indios of Brazil. Exploitation, Resistance, and Demonization A turning point in the anti-Indian propaganda and anti-idolatry campaign that accompanied the colonization process was the decision by the Spanish crown in the 1550s to introduce in the American colonies a far more severe system of exploitation. The decision was motivated by the crisis of the plunder economy that had been introduced after the conquest, whereby the accumulation of wealth continued to depend on the expropriation of the Indians as surplus goods more than on the direct exploitation of their labor. Until the 1550s, despite the massacres and the exploitation associated with the system of engomienda, the Spaniards had not completely disrupted the subsistence economies which they had found in the areas they colonized. Instead, they had relied, for the wealth they accumulated, on the tribute systems put into place by the Aztecs and Incas, whereby designated chiefs, caciques in Mexico, curacas in Peru, delivered them quotas of goods and labor supposedly compatible with the survival of the local economies, The tribute, which the Spaniards exacted, was much higher than that the Aztecs and Incas had ever demanded of those they conquered, but it was still not sufficient to satisfy their needs. By the 1550s, they were finding it difficult to obtain enough labour for both the obrajes, the manufacturing workshops where goods were produced for the international market, and the exploitation of the newly discovered silver and mercury mines, like the legendary one at Potosí. The need to squeeze more work from the aboriginal populations largely derived from the situation at home, where the Spanish crown was literally floating on the American bullion, which bought food and goods no longer produced in Spain. In addition, the plundered wealth financed the crown's European territorial expansion. This was so dependent on the continuous arrival of masses of silver and gold from the New World that... By the 1550s, the crown was ready to undermine the power of the Encomenderos in order to appropriate the bulk of the Indians' labor for the extraction of silver to be shipped to Spain, but resistance to colonization was mounting. It was in response to this challenge that, both in Mexico and Peru, a war was declared on indigenous cultures, paving the way to a draconian intensification of colonial rule. In Mexico, this turn occurred in 1562 when, by the initiative of the provincial Diego de Landa, an anti idolatry campaign was launched in the Yucatan Peninsula, in the course of which more than 4,500 people were rounded up and brutally tortured under the charge of practicing human sacrifices. They were then subjected to a well-orchestrated public punishment, which finished destroying their bodies and their morale. So cruel were the penalties inflicted, flogging so severe that they made the blood flow, years of enslavement in the mines, that many people died or remained unfit for work others fled their homes or committed suicide so that work came to an end and the regional economy was disrupted however the persecution that lander mounted was the foundation of a new colonial economy since it signaled to the local population that the spaniards were there to stay and the rule of the old gods was over in peru as well the first large-scale attack on diabolism occurred in the 1560s coinciding with the rise of the Takayonkohi movement, a native millenarian movement that preached against collaboration with the Europeans and for a Panandean alliance of the gods, Huacas, putting an end to colonisation. Attributing the defeat suffered and the rising mortality to the abandonment of the local gods, the Takayonkos encouraged people to reject the Christian religion and the names, food, clothing received from the Spaniards. They also urged them to refuse the tribute payments and labor drafts that the Spaniards imposed on them, and to, quote, stop wearing shirts, hats, sandals, or any other clothes from Spain, unquote. If this was done, they promised, the revived Huacas would turn the world around and destroy the Spaniards by sending sickness and floods to their cities, the ocean rising to erase any memory of their existence. The threat posed by the Takayonkos was a serious one, since, by calling for a Pan-Andean unification of the Huacas, the movement marked the beginning of a new sense of identity capable of overcoming the divisions connected with the traditional organization of the Ayulos or family unit. In Stern's words, it marked the first time that the people of the Andes began to think of themselves as one people, as Indians, and, in fact, the movement spread widely, Reaching quote, as far north as Lima, as far east as Cusco, and over the high puna of the south to La Paz in contemporary Bolivia. Unquote. The response came with the ecclesiastical council held in Lima in 1567, which established that the priests should extirpate the innumerable superstitions, ceremonies, and diabolical rites of the Indians. They were also to stamp out drunkenness, arrest witch doctors, and above all, discover and destroy shrines and talismans unquote, connected with the worship of the local gods or huacas. These recommendations were repeated at a synod in Quito in 1570, where, again, it was denounced that quote, there are famous witch doctors who guard the huacas and converse with the devil. Unquote. The wakas were mountains, springs, stones, and animals embodying the spirits of the ancestor. As such, they were collectively cared for, fed, and worshipped for everyone recognized them as the main link with the land and with the agricultural practices central to economic reproduction. Women talked to them, as they apparently still do, in some regions of South America to ensure a healthy crop. Destroying them, or forbidding their worship, was to attack the community, its historical roots, people's relation to their land and intensely spiritual relation to nature. This was understood by the Spaniards, who, in the 1550s, embarked on a systematic destruction of anything resembling an object of worship. What Claude Bardet and Sidney Picasso write about the anti idolatry drive conducted by the Franciscans against the Mayas in the Yucatan also applies to the rest of Mexico and Peru. Idols were destroyed, temples burnt, and those who celebrated native rites and practiced sacrifices were punished by death. Festivities such as banquets, songs and dances, as well as artistic and intellectual activities – painting, sculpture, observation of stars, hieroglyphic writing – suspected of being inspired by the devil – were forbidden, and those who took part in them mercilessly hunted down." This process went hand-in-hand hand with the reform demanded by the Spanish crown that increased the exploitation of indigenous labour to ensure a better flow of bullion into its coffers. Two measures were introduced for this purpose, both facilitated by the anti-idolatry campaign. First, the quota of labour that the chiefs had to provide for the mines and the obrajes was vastly increased, and the enforcement of the new rule was placed under the supervision of a local representative of the crown, corregidor with the power to arrest and administer other forms of punishment in case of failure to comply. Further, a resettlement program, Reduciones, was introduced, removing much of the rural population into designated villages so as to place it under a more direct control. The destruction of the Huacas and the persecution of the ancestor religion associated with them was instrumental to both, since the Reduciones gained strength from the demonization of the local worshipping sites. It was soon clear, however, that under the cover of Christianization, people continued to worship their gods, in the same way as they continued to return to their milpas, or fields, after being removed from their homes. Thus, instead of diminishing, the attack on the local gods intensified with the time, climaxing between 1619 and 1660, when the destruction of local gods was accompanied by true witch hunts, this time targeting women in particular. Karen Spalding has described one of these witch-hunts conducted in the repartimiento of Guadalchiri in 1660 by the priest-inquisitor Don Juan Sarmiento. As she reports, the investigation was conducted according to the same pattern of the witch-hunts in Europe. It began with the reading of the Edict Against Idolatry and the preaching of a sermon against this sin. This was followed by secret denunciations supplied by anonymous informants, then came the questioning of subjects, the use of torture to extract confessions, and then the sentencing and punishment, in this case consisting of public whipping, exile, and various other forms of humiliation. Quote, the people sentenced were brought into the public square. They were placed upon mules and donkeys with wooden crosses about six inches long around their necks. They were ordered to wear these marks of humiliation from that day forward. On their heads, The religious authorities put a medieval corosa, a cone-shaped hood made of pasteboard that was the European Catholic mark of infamy and disgrace. Between these hoods, the hair was cut off, an Andean mark of humiliation. Those who were condemned to receive lashes had their backs bared, ropes were put around their necks. They were paraded slowly through the streets of the town, with a crier ahead of them reading out their crimes. After this spectacle, the people were brought back, some with their backs bleeding from the twenty, forty, or one hundred lashes with the cat nine tails wielded by the village executioner." Spalding concludes that quote, "...the idolatry campaigns were exemplary rituals, didactic theatre pieces, directed to the audience as much as to the participants, much like a public hanging in medieval Europe." Unquote. Their objective was to intimidate the population, to create a, quote, space of death, unquote, where potential rebels would be so paralyzed with fear that they would accept anything rather than having to face the same ordeal of those publicly beaten and humiliated. In this, the Spaniards were in part successful. Faced with torture, anonymous denunciations, and public humiliations, many alliances and friendships broke down. People's faith in the effectiveness of their gods weakened, and worship turned into a secret, individual practice rather than a collective one, as it had been in pre-conquest America. How deeply the social fabric was affected by these terror campaigns can be deduced, according to Spalding, from the changes that over time took place in the nature of the charges. While in the 1550s people could openly acknowledge theirs and their community's attachment to the traditional religion, by the 1650s the crimes of which they were accused revolved around, quote, witchcraft, unquote, a practice now presuming a secretive behaviour and they increasingly resembled the accusations made against witches in Europe in the campaign launched in 1660 in the Warochiri area for instance quote, "the crimes uncovered by the authorities dealt with curing finding lost goods and other forms of what might be generally called village witchcraft" unquote. yet the same campaign revealed that despite the persecution in the eyes of the communities The ancestors and wax or wakas continued to be essential to their survival. Women and Witches in America. It is not a coincidence that most of the people convicted in the investigation of 1660 in Warochiri were women, 28 out of 32, in the same way as women had been the main presence in the Takionkohi movement. It was women who most strongly defended the old mode of existence and opposed the new power structure, plausibly because they also were the ones most negatively affected by it. Women had held a powerful position in pre-Columbian societies, as reflected by the existence of many important female deities in their religions. Reaching an island off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in 1517, Hernández de Cordoba named it Isla Mujeres, because the temples they visited here contained numerous female idols. Pre conquest American women had their organizations, their socially recognized spheres of activity, and, while not equal to men, they were considered complementary to them in their contribution to the family and to society. In addition to being farmers, houseworkers, and weavers, in charge of producing colorful cloth worn every day in life and during the ceremonies, they were potters, herbalists, healers, curanderas and priestesses, sacerdotisas, at the service of household gods. In southern Mexico, in the region of Oaxaca, they were connected with the production of pulque magui, a secret substance believed to have been invented by the gods, and associated with mayahuel, an earth mother goddess that was, quote, the focal point of peasant religion, unquote. But with the Spaniards' arrival, everything changed, as they brought their baggage of misogynist beliefs and restructured the economy and political power in ways that favoured men. Women suffered also at the hands of the traditional chiefs, who, in order to maintain their power, began to take over the communal lands and expropriate the female members of the community from land use and water rights. Thus, within the colonial economy, Women were reduced to the condition of servants, working as maids, for the encomenderos, the priests, the corregidores, or as weavers in the obrajes. Women were also forced to follow their husbands when they would have to do mita work in the mines, a fate that people recognised to be worse than death. For, in 1528, the authorities established that spouses could not be separated, so that women and children from then on could be compelled to do mine labour, in addition to preparing food for the male workers. Another source of degradation for women was the new Spanish legislation which declared polygamy illegal, so that, overnight, men had to either separate from their wives or reclassify them as maids, while the children issued from these unions were labelled according to five different types of illegitimacy. Ironically, while polygamous unions were dissolved, with the arrival of the Spaniards, no aboriginal woman was safe from rape or appropriation, so that many men, instead of marrying, began to turn to public prostitutes. In the European fantasy, America itself was a reclining, naked woman, seductively inviting the approaching white stranger. At times, it was the Indian men themselves who delivered their female kin to the priests or encomenderos in exchange for some economic reward or public post. For all these reasons, women became the main enemies of colonial rule, refusing to go to mass, to baptize their children, or to cooperate in any way with the colonial authorities and priests. In the Andes, some committed suicide and killed their male children, presumably to prevent them from going to the mines, and also out of disgust, apparently, for the mistreatment inflicted upon them by their male relatives. Others organized their communities, and, in front of the defection of many local chiefs who were co-opted by the colonial structure, became priests, leaders, and guardians of the huacas, taking on functions which they had never previously exercised, This explains why women were the backbone of the tachyoncoy movement. In Peru, they also held confessions to prepare people for when they would meet with the Catholic priests, advising them as to what would be safe to tell them and what they should not reveal. And while before the conquest women had been in charge exclusively of the ceremonies dedicated to female deities, afterwards they became assistants or principal officiants in cults dedicated to the male ancestor Huacas, something that before the conquest had been forbidden they also fought the colonial power by withdrawing to the higher plains, or punas, where they could practice the old religion. As Irene Silverblatt writes, While indigenous men often fled the oppression of the mita and the tribute by abandoning their communities and going to work as yaconas or quasi-serfs in the merging haciendas, women fled to the punas, inaccessible and very distant from the reduciones of their native communities. Once in the punas, Women rejected the forces and symbols of their oppression, disobeying Spanish administrators, the clergy, as well as their own community officials. They also vigorously rejected the colonial ideology, which reinforced their oppression, refusing to go to Mass, participate in Catholic confessions, or learn Catholic dogma. More important, women did not just reject Catholicism, they returned to their native religion, and, to the best that they could, to the quality of social relations which their religion expressed. By persecuting women as witches, then, the Spaniards targeted both the practitioners of the old religion and the instigators of anti colonial revolt while attempting to redefine the spheres of activity in which indigenous women could participate. As Silverblatt points out, the concept of witchcraft was alien to the Andean society. In Peru, as well as in every pre industrial society, many women were specialists in medical knowledge being familiar with the properties of herbs and plants, and they were also diviners. But the Christian notion of the devil was unknown to them. Nevertheless, by the 17th century, under the impact of torture, intense persecution, and forced acculturation, the Andean women arrested, mostly old and poor, were accusing themselves of the same crimes with which women were being charged in the European witch trials, pacts and copulation with the devil, prescribing herbal remedies, using ointments, flying through the air, making wax images. They also confessed to worshipping stones, mountains and springs, and feeding the huacas. Worst of all, they confessed to bewitching the authorities or other men of power and causing them to die. As it was in Europe, torture and terror were used to force the accused to deliver other names so that the circles of persecution became wider and wider. But one of the objectives of the witch hunt, the isolation of the witches from the rest of the community, was not achieved. The Andean witches were not turned into outcasts. On the contrary, they were actively sought for as comadres, and their presence was required in informal village unions, for in the consciousness of the colonised, witchcraft, the maintenance of ancient traditions, and conscious political resistance became increasingly intertwined, Indeed. It was largely due to women's resistance that the old religion was preserved. Changes occurred in the meanings of the practices associated with it. Worship was driven underground at the expense of its collective nature in the pre-conquest times. But the ties with the mountains and the other sites of the Huacas were not destroyed. We find a similar situation in central and southern Mexico, where women, priestesses above all, played an important role in the defense of their communities and cultures. In this region, according to Antonio García de León's Resistencia y Utopia, from the conquest on, women, quote, directed or counseled all the great anti colonial revolts. Unquote. In Oaxaca, the presence of women in particular rebellions continued into the 18th century, when, in one out of four cases, they led the attack against the authorities, quote, and were visibly more aggressive, insulting, and rebellious. Unquote. In Chiapas, too, they were the key actors in the preservation of the old religion, and the anti-colonization struggle. Thus, when, in 1524, the Spaniards launched a war campaign to subjugate the rebellious chiapanecos it was a priestess who led the troops against them. Women also participated in the underground networks of idol worshippers and resistors that periodically were discovered by the clergy. In 1584, for instance, upon visiting Chiapas, the Bishop Pedro de Feria was told that several among the local Indian chiefs were still practicing the old cults, and that they were being counselled by women, with whom they entertained filthy practices, such as, sabbat-like, ceremonies, during which they mixed together and turned into gods and goddesses, the women being in charge of sending rain and giving wealth to those who asked for it. It is ironic, then, in this view of the record, that Caliban and not his mother Sycorax, the witch, should be taken by Latin American revolutionaries as a symbol of the resistance to colonization. For Caliban could only fight his master by cursing him in the language he had learned from him, thus being dependent in his rebellion on his master's tools. He could also be deceived into believing that his liberation could come through a rape and through the initiative of some opportunistic white proletarians transplanted in the New World whom he worshipped as gods. Sycorax, instead, a witch, quote, so strong that she could control the moon, make flows and ebbs, unquote, might have taught her son to appreciate the local powers, the land, the waters, the trees, nature's treasuries, and those communal ties that, over centuries of suffering, have continued to nourish the liberation struggle to this day, and that already haunted, as a promise, Caliban's imagination. Quote, Be not afeard, the isle is full of noises, sounds, and sweet airs, that give delight and hurt not, Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices, that if then had waked after long sleep will make me sleep again, and then dreaming, the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me, that when waked I cried to dream again. Unquote. The Tempest, Act 3. The European Witches and the Indios. Did the witch hunts in the New World have an impact on events in Europe, or were the two persecutions simply drawing from the same pool of repressive strategies and tactics which the European ruling class had forged since the Middle Ages with the persecution of heretics? I ask these questions having in mind the thesis advanced by the Italian historian Luciano Parinetto, who argues that witch hunting in the New World had a major impact on the elaboration of the witchcraft ideology in Europe, as well as the chronology of the European witch hunt. Briefly put, Parinetto's thesis is that it was under the impact of the American experience that the witch-hunt in Europe became a mass phenomenon in the second part of the 16th century. For in America, the authorities and the clergy found the confirmation for their views about devil worship, coming to believe in the existence of entire populations of witches, a conviction which they then applied in their Christianization drive at home. Thus, Another import from the New World, described by missionaries as the land of the devil, was the adoption by the European state of extermination as a political strategy, which, presumably, inspired the massacres of the Huguenots and the massification of the witch hunt starting in the last decades of the 16th century. Evidence of a crucial connection between the two perspectives is, in Parinetto's view, the use made by the demonologists in Europe of the reports from the Indies. Parinetto focuses on Jean Baudin, but he also mentions Francesco Maria Goazzo and cites, as an example of the boomerang effect produced by the transplanting of the witch hunt in America, the case of the inquisitor Pierre Lancre, who, during a several months persecution in the region of the Laborde in Basque Country, denounced its entire population as witches. Not last, Barinetto cites, as evidence of his thesis, a set of themes that, in the second half of the 16th century, became prominent in the repertoire of witchcraft in Europe. Cannibalism, the offering of children to the devil, the reference to ointments and drugs, the identification of homosexuality or sodomy with diabolism, all of which, he argues, had their matrix in the new world. What to make of this theory, and where to draw the line between what is accountable and what is speculative, This is a question that future scholarship will have to settle. Here, I limit myself to a few observations. Barinetto's thesis is important, since it helps us dispel the Eurocentrism that has characterised the study of the witch hunt, and can potentially answer some of the questions raised by the persecution of the European witches. But its main contribution is that it broadens our awareness of the global character of capitalist development, And makes us realize that, by the 16th century, a ruling class had formed in Europe that was at all points involved, practically, politically, and ideologically, in the formation of a world proletariat, and therefore was continually operating with knowledge gathered on an international level in the elaboration of its models of domination. As for its claims we can observe that the history of Europe before the conquest is sufficient proof that the Europeans did not have to cross the oceans to find the will to exterminate those standing in their way. It is also possible to account for the chronology of the witch-hunt in Europe without resorting to the New World Impact Hypothesis, since the decades between the 1560s and 1620s saw a widespread impoverishment and social dislocations throughout most of Western Europe. More suggestive In provoking a rethinking of the European witch hunt from the viewpoint of witch hunting in America are the thematic and iconographic correspondences between the two. The theme of self-ointing is one of the most revealing as the descriptions of the behavior of the Aztec or Incan priests on the occasion of human sacrifices evoke those found in some demonologies describing the preparations of the witches for the Sabbath. Consider the following passage found in Acosta, which reads the American practice as a perversion of the Christian habit of consecrating priests by anointing them. The idle priests in Mexico oint themselves in the following way. They grease themselves from the feet to the head, including the hair. The substance with which they stained themselves was ordinary tea, because from antiquity it was always an offering to their gods, and for this much worshipped. This was their ordinary greasing. Except, when they went to sacrifice or went to the caves where they kept their idols when they used a different greasing to give themselves courage this grease was made of poisonous substances frogs salamanders vipers with this greasing they could turn into magicians brujos and speak with the devil Unquote. the same poisonous brew was presumably spread by the european witches on their bodies according to some accusers in order to gain the power to fly to the Sabbath. But it cannot be assumed that this theme was generated in the new world, as references to women making ointments from the blood of toads or children's bones are found already in the 15th century trials and demonologies. What is plausible, instead, is that the reports from America did revitalize these charges, adding new details and giving more authority to them. The same consideration may serve to explain the iconographic correspondence between the pictures of the Sabbat and the various representations of the cannibal family and clan that began to appear in Europe in the later 16th century, and it can account for many other coincidences, such as the fact that both in Europe and America witches were accused of sacrificing children to the devil. Witch-hunting and Globalization Witch-hunting in America continued in waves through the end of the 17th century, when the persistence of demographic decline and increased political and economic security on the side of the colonial power structure combined to put an end to the persecution. Thus, in the same region that had witnessed the great anti idolatry campaigns of the 16th and 17th century, by the 18th, the Inquisition had renounced any attempts to influence the moral and religious beliefs of the population, apparently estimating that they could no longer pose a danger to the colonial rule. In the place of the persecution, a paternalistic perspective emerged that looked at idolatry and magical practices as the foibles of ignorant people not worthy of being taken into consideration by la gente de la zone. From then on, the preoccupation with devil-worshipping would migrate to the developing slave plantations of Brazil, the Caribbean, and North America, where, starting with Kim Philip's wars, English settlers justified their massacres of the Native American Indians by labelling them as servants of the devil. The Salem trials were also explained by the local authorities on this ground, with the argument that the New Englanders had settled in the land of the devil. As Cotton Mather wrote years later recalling the events in Salem, I have met with some strange things which have made me think that this inexplicable war, that is, the war made by the spirits of the invisible world against the people of Salem, might have its origins among the Indians, whose chief Sagamores are well known unto some of our captive to have been horrid sorcerers and hellish conjurers and such as conversed with the demons, It is significant in this context that the Salem trials were sparked by the divinations of a West Indian slave, Tituba, who was among the first to be arrested, and that the last execution of a witch in an English-speaking territory was that of a black slave, Sarah Bassett, killed in Bermuda in 1730. By the 18th century, in fact, the witch was becoming an African practitioner of obeah, a ritual that the planters feared and demonized as an incitement to rebellion. Witch-hunting did not disappear from the repertoire of the bourgeoisie with the abolition of slavery. On the contrary, the global expansion of capitalism through colonialization and Christianization ensured that this persecution would be planted in the body of colonized societies and, in time, would be carried out by the subjugated communities in their own names, and against their own members. In the 1840s, for instance, a wave of witch burnings occurred in western India. More women in this period were burned as witches than in the practice of sati. These killings occurred in the context of the social crisis, caused by both the colonial authorities' attack on the communities living in the forests, among whom the women had a far higher degree of power than in the caste societies that dwelled in the plains, and the colonial devaluation of women's power, resulting in the decline of the worship of female goddesses. Witch-hunting also took hold in Africa, where it survives today as a key instrument of division in many countries, especially those once implicated in the slave trade, like Nigeria and southern Africa. Here, too, witch-hunting has accompanied the decline in the status of women brought about by the rise of capitalism, and the intensifying struggle for resources, which, in recent years, has been aggravated by the imposition of the neoliberal agenda. As a consequence of the life and death competition for vanishing resources, scores of women, generally old and poor, have been hunted down in the 1990s in northern Transvaal, where 70 were burned just in the first four months of 1994. Witch hunts have also been reported in Kenya, Nigeria, Cameroon in the 1980s and 1990s, concomitant with the imposition by the international monetary fund and the world bank of the policy of structural adjustment which has led to a new round of enclosures and caused unprecedented impoverishment among the population in nigeria by the 1980s innocent girls were confessing to having killed dozens of people while in other african countries petitions were addressed to governments begging them to persecute more strongly the witches meanwhile in south africa and brazil Older women were murdered by neighbors and kin, under the charge of witchcraft. At the same time, a new kind of witch beliefs is presently developing, resembling that documented by Michael Tausig in Bolivia, where poor people suspect the nouveau riche of having gained their wealth through illicit, supernatural means, and accuse them of wanting to transform their victims into zombies in order to put them to work. The witch hunts that are presently taking place in Africa or Latin America are rarely reported in Europe and the United States, in the same way as the witch hunts of the 16th and 17th centuries, for a long time, were of little interest to the historians. Even when they are reported, their significance is generally missed, so widespread is the belief that such phenomena belong to a far gone era and have nothing to do with us. But if we apply to the present the lessons of the past, we realize that the reappearance of witch hunting in so many parts of the world in the 80s and 90s is a clear sign of a process of primitive accumulation, which means that the privatization of land and other communal resources, mass impoverishment, plunder, and the sowing of divisions in once cohesive communities are again on the world agenda. If things continue this way, the elders in a Senegalese village commented to an American anthropologist, expressing their fears for the future, our children will eat each other. And, indeed, this is what is accomplished by a witch hunt whether it is conducted from above, as a means to criminalize resistance to expropriation, or is conducted from below, as a means to appropriate diminishing resources, as seems to be the case in some parts of Africa today. In some countries, this process still requires the mobilization of witches, spirits, and devils, but we should not delude ourselves that this is not our concern. As Arthur Miller already saw in his interpretation of the Salem trials, as soon as we strip the persecution of witches from its metaphysical trappings, we recognise in it phenomena that are very close to home.